Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Table Podcast. The Table is a church in Davenport, Iowa, where people are moving from greed toward generosity, from violence toward peacemaking, from isolation toward neighborliness, and from fear toward faith. I am Pastor Rob, and I'm glad to be with you today. My scripture reader and conversation partner for today is Marcy Leverage, and Marcy's going to be reading uh, probably the shortest parable, or one of the very shortest, that Jesus uh, told in the Gospels. She's going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Let's give a listen. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Fun fact, the woman who led the campaign to have Mother's Day adopted as a national holiday later sued the Hallmark Greeting Card Company trying to get them to stop printing Mother's Day cards. For real. Um, when that didn't work, she led a new campaign to have the national holiday rescinded. The woman who started Mother's Day tried to get Mother's Day canceled. This is a true story. Um, her name was Anna Jarvis. Uh, she was born in 1864, and her mother was Anne Maria Jarvis. Anne Maria Jarvis lived in Virginia, and in the 1840s and 1850s, she established and she led these social groups that were called Mother's Day Clubs, and they were dedicated to all kinds of community service. Now, community service in, in this context is a little bit different than, well, I don't know. I don't know what you associate with community service, but these ladies were down in dirty, dirty nitty-gritty community service. They were actually working to improve water quality in their communities and, and to establish better sanitation systems in an effort to reduce childhood and infant mortality. Um, Jarvis herself bore probably 13 children um, during her life, though the records aren't exactly uh, complete. At least seven of her children died in childhood. And so these Mother's Day clubs were part of a public health movement in the 19th century. And, and then the Civil War began, uh, the American Civil War. And as you may have heard, infectious diseases were rampant throughout military camps all during the Civil War, especially among wounded soldiers. So these Mother's Day clubs, um, they got basically repurposed. They were, Jarvis reorganized these groups and deployed them to serve men who had been wounded in combat. Now, critically, uh, these clubs, they served women, they served um, camps of wounded soldiers from both sides of the conflict, both the Union and the Confederate sides. And then after the war, um, these uh, clubs were focused on efforts to reconcile communities and to reunite um, families. This was especially relevant in Virginia, where there was an enormous division within the state, uh, which culminated in the separation of Western Virginia, which became the state of West Virginia uh, during the Civil War. Now, Anna Maria Jarvis, there's just no other way of putting it. She lived an incredibly hard life. It was full of tragedy, and it was full of trauma, and and frankly, it was just full of, of real hard work. She was a lifelong activist for peace, for national reconciliation, and for public health. And then her daughter, 
uh, you know, following in her footsteps, um, her daughter Anna wanted to honor her and honor all mothers with a day that lifted up the values that her mom embodied. These were values of compassion, devotion, and peacemaking. You know, it, she led this campaign. It actually took uh, quite a lot of years um, to make the idea of a Mother's Day holiday a priority for lawmakers. But in 1914, this was years after her mom had already died, um, but in 1914, the second Sunday in May was made a national holiday. And Basically, immediately, as you might imagine, um, companies started treating it as an opportunity to sell people stuff. Now, uh, you know, what do you know? Um, so you and I probably are as accustomed to capitalism as we are and maybe jaded by it. Um, you might think that this is uh, an obvious thing, right? If you establish a new holiday, people are going to start um, selling stuff in honor of that holiday, right? Um, but when this originally happened with, with Mother's Day at the very beginning, Anna Jarvis, who had led this whole campaign to set the whole thing up, she was actually shocked and appalled. She couldn't believe it, right? She, she did not see this coming, and she was actually furious about it because she believed that if Mother's Day uh, was turned into this just occasion to give gifts and send greeting cards, then it would cease to be about the values and the principles for which it was established. Well, you know, <laughs> okay. Um, so she was not successful in her second campaign. I guess it is um, harder to uh, de-establish a holiday than it is to establish a holiday. Um, I don't know. Um, but as we, as she found out, and as we all know, there's not going to be any Mother's Day in, in the United States um, anytime soon that is free of commercialism. But I would say that, of course, she was right she was right to insist that on Mother's Day, we not only express our appreciation for individual mothers, our own mothers or the people in our lives who we want to say happy Mother's Day to, right? But that we also should be focusing on the best principles and, and the values of motherhood generally. And I think this is important for us a hundred years later for a couple of reasons, really. First, um, as as people of faith, the beauty, the brilliance, the power, and the grace that really good moms embody, um, these help us to perceive the character and the nature of God. Um, throughout our religious history, God has mostly been understood as male. Even today, people mostly use masculine language to talk about God, and God is the father uh, of Jesus, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with that, except that it is very limiting, uh, because God is ultimate, and God encompasses the spirit and the gifts of all genders, no matter how much people call God he, right? So today, we're actually going to look at some scriptures that describe God using feminine and maternal languages and concepts. But then also the, the second reason that I think it's important for us to focus on the highest values and the, the best character traits of, of mothers is that it's the best of what moms offer throughout the world is supremely relevant uh, to all of us right now during this trying time that we are living through. All of us, whether we're moms or not, can benefit from remembering and following the example of really good moms during COVID-19. 
Now, it is a, a little bit tricky uh, to talk about this stuff because um, some of the best things about moms are not just true about moms. You know, this, this is a pretty basic point that I think most of us understand, but women without kids and men share a lot of the really good qualities of good moms. And of course, um, you, you know, you have to be careful about making any kind of blanket statements about mothers and about motherhood because some mothers aren't great. I mean, we have to acknowledge that. Um, some mothers provide an example that you don't want people to follow, and that's a, that's a really sad uh, fact. It's a fact of life. Um, but nevertheless, I would say there are certain human virtues um, that not only mothers possess and, and that not all mothers possess, but these virtues still get associated with mothers and for good reason. Um, and I think it's just because so many of us learn about these things from mom. Yeah. So here's an example. I would call it a forever devotion. Um, mothers have shown me, and maybe they've shown you, um, what it looks like when a person never, ever, ever gives up on you. Um, when, a, when a person shows you that they are for you, um, come what may, no matter what, forever. And that's a God thing. It's, uh, it's a mom thing. Um, some moms will tell you that they don't have a choice in the matter. Uh, the kind of dedication and attachment and adoration that they feel for their children is a fierce and desperate condition of the heart that hit them like a ton of bricks when they first became mothers and it hasn't ever let up. Um, that in, in this way of thinking about it, devotion is like an instinct. It, it just happens and, and a mom can't exactly help it. Um, but, you know, I, I hear a lot of moms talk about it like that, but I've heard other moms um, describe their devotion to their kids a little bit differently, that it's, it's more of a conscientious choosing um, to love and care for their kids. It's more mindful than it is instinctual. But the devotion, of course, is no less absolute and no less permanent. It's a commitment of great intention, and it's a forever thing. Uh, now consider these verses um, from the Bible, um, from Isaiah 66, uh, where God says, As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, it says, uh, You forgot the God who gave you birth. Now these, uh, both of these verses um, characterize God as a mother. But also, look at the faithfulness that's implied in the second verse. It's such a short uh, verse. It's a very short sentence, very brief. But it, it, it acknowledges that at times a child may neglect the mother or take the mother for granted or forget things that the mother has done for the child. But this mother never forgets her child. And it's a very important principle for us to remember that God's faithfulness, devotion, and care continue even when we as God's children may falter. But it's also a principle that will help us prevail through the trials that we are all living through right now, right? We need to handle ourselves like a good mother, right, um, who doesn't give up on her people. That is, that is called for from each of us in these trying times that we are living in. We will persevere 
through the challenges that we are, fa are facing, and we will do it without foregoing the care that we are meant to offer to those around us, if indeed we follow in the footsteps of really good moms, right? Okay, so that, that's the first point I wanted to lift up. The second principle that I personally associate with mothers, I suspect that you may as well, it's this principle of a, a very fierce protectiveness. Um, that, like, don't get between a mama bear and her cub, right? You've heard that. Um, the understanding that a mother stands guard, stands over, and will protect the little ones, right? Again, this is not only true of mothers. And sadly, some people do not receive the care that we wish they did from their mother. But still, I would say that a mother protecting her child is a fundamental element in how we expect human beings to relate to one another. That's why if a, if, if a mother does not look out for her kids, it seems, like, uh, it seems like such a terrible thing. Like this is not the way things are supposed to to be, right? We believe and we understand that on the level of human connection, the strong should protect the weak. They should protect the small and the vulnerable. And the archetypal image of this principle is not a warrior in armor, right? Wielding a sword and protecting the weak. No, of course, the image is a, a mother holding a child, keeping a child safe. And so this is so much the case that when Jesus uh, grieved over Jerusalem and he, he, he was knowing how much violence there was in the city, but also how much more violence was coming soon. And he wished that he could save the city and its people from experiencing the, the, de the devastation and the brutality that was on the way. And he, as he was grieving these things, he didn't say, I wish I could destroy all the evil people in the world and so that violence would end. He, he didn't say that. And he, and he didn't say, I wish I could build this gigantic wall uh, so, so high and so perfect that the city will be safe. That's not what he said. Instead, he said... Um, I wish I could gather the children of this place together the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Bring them in close, bring them close to protect them. Right? Jesus learned this concept from his own mother. Um, the pandemic and the economic shutdown that it has caused have been so incredibly stressful uh, for all of us. The experience has pushed us to recreate our lifestyles and our rhythms and our schedules and our expectations for how things are supposed to go on a normal uh, day uh, day to day, right? The pandemic has stolen events and opportunities and experiences that we were counting on. And of course, it has been a long drawn out process. It just keeps going week after week and we're getting really sick of it. I am. And it's very easy when we go through something like this to become jaded and self-pitying and inwardly focused on just how unhappy we are about how things have been going. It requires a great deal of vigilance in a situation like this to remain focused on protecting the weak and the vulnerable. When we just want to go out and get back to normal and get our normal lives 
back. But if the threat of this pandemic remains, then the calling remains for us to act like Jesus, the mother hen, who spreads her wings to keep danger at bay and protect the vulnerable. Um, the last principle, the last uh, value of motherhood, the last character trait of really good moms that I'd like to celebrate as an example for us all is something that I find in the parable that we read from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this is one of the shortest of Jesus's parables. It's only one verse long, and it is another example um, in which the Bible describes God as a woman. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The, the flour in this parable is the world and the kingdom of heaven is yeast. The woman who leavens the flour is God. Now, many Bible scholars um, pair this parable with another very short passage, only a line as well, that is also in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's from the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. Right? These two teachings together about salt and yeast tell us a lot about how Jesus thinks that God is bringing about a new world uh, because the new world is not about starting over after this world comes to an end and it's not about making the world into something other than what the world truly is salt will not turn a piece of fish into a blueberry muffin for example right but it changes the experience of whatever food you put it on right so if you live a grace-filled life in Davenport Iowa or in Kalamazoo Michigan or wherever I mean if you live grace in Kalamazoo Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo is still going to be Kalamazoo but you are affecting it right Kalamazoo will have more of the flavor of goodwill and compassion and generosity because of you being there living God's grace, okay? And, and likewise, yeast does not make flour into something other than flour. Bread made with or without yeast is still bread. But, <laughs> of course, if you've ever eaten unleavened bread, you know... <laughs> how much of a difference yeast truly makes. It transforms the bread. It raises it. It makes all the difference. And if God is mixing heaven into the world, the way a woman mixes leaven into flour, then the kingdom of heaven is not a place that we escape the world in order to get to. Rather, it's a process of transforming the world into something heavenly. Okay? Now, in both of these examples, the thing that makes all the difference is actually very small. A little salt goes a long way in a recipe. We know this. And a loaf of bread has literally thousands of times more flour in it than it has yeast. But so, so by describing holy things in these terms, God is teaching us how much 
power small things can wield. And this is a truth that, of course, mothers have always shown us. Again, not all of us have grown up with a nurturing, caring mother. And so this principle is sadly not universal. But I would hazard a guess that if your mother taught you grace and strength and compassion, my guess is that you didn't learn these things in some breathtaking moment of cinematic spectacle, like your mom stopping a train from going off of, of a bridge or, or going into a fire, fiery, a fireball at the bottom of a cliff. Although, let me be clear, if your mom actually ever did save a train full of people from crashing, I want you to know I have the utmost respect for that. Um, but chances are, the, the grace and the patience and the wisdom and the love that you learned from your mother, chances are, I'm guessing, you learned in small things, in, in brief moments of caring and teaching, that grace was sown into and throughout your life like leaven. Uh, something I've been paying attention to lately is how my wife uh, brings curiosity and creativity in caring for our children. And uh, she, she, she'll encounter a kid who's angry or crying or withdrawn. And, and there's information on the surface of things that indicates what's going on. But my wife will pause and wonder what else is at play that might not be obvious, but is very important to the whole situation. So a simple example is uh, it might be that if a kid is freaking out about something that she will insist that they eat a cracker and a slice of an apple as they tell her about it. And, and what she's doing when, when she makes that small little choice is, is she's sensing that the child is depleted. And that's not the only thing that's going on, right? Every time a kid is cranky, it's not just completely solved by eating a cracker, right? But the need for nourishment is affecting whatever the picture, the bigger picture of the drama is. And so giving a kid a slice of apple, it's a very, very small thing, but it always seems to help. Small things make all kinds of difference, right? Now, the pandemic is a big, big thing. Many of us will say it is the biggest thing that we've ever dealt with. But what are the most effective ways that we have learned to confront it? They're small things, right? Washing your hands, staying a few feet away from people, putting on a mask, um, staying home instead of going out. Right? These are not hard things to do, but they are powerful. And beyond even the spread of disease, when we think about the compassion and the solidarity that is called, that is required of us, right? Um, in order for us to pull through this crisis, we should never forget our calling to be salt and leaven. Right? To actively choose modest acts of kindness and generosity, looking out for one another, checking in, sharing what we have, food, money, clothing, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, right? Small things help a lot. 
Brothers and sisters, um, 100 years later, we can take Ann Jarvis's lead. And on Mother's Day, uh, we, we, we should call our moms and tell them that we love them. It's true. But not only that, um, we can think about what makes a really good mom a really good mom. And consider Mother's Day an invitation to be like that, right? Um, to follow in the footsteps of a wonderful mother. Because the way of compassion and grace and generosity and care and courage, that is, that is not just a really good mom's example. It's also the way of God. Amen. Our guest this week is Marcy Leverage. Marcy is a fantastic person, a wonderful psychologist, and a wise soul living in Oklahoma City. Uh, Marcy is my mom. Uh, she raised me, and uh, I am always sort of looking back to conversations and experiences that um, I've had with her to inform all my thinking about um, parenthood, um, what it means to uh, be a, a responsible member of a community, and just life in general. Um, so thank you very much for being a part of this episode of the podcast, Mom. <laughs> Glad to be here. Yeah, so um, how was Mother's Day for you this year? Um, it was actually quite wonderful. Um, Mother's Day is always good when I get to talk to all of my kids. But um, this year when people had to work a little harder at um, being available because of the uh, COVID-19, uh, that made it more special to me. We spend so much of our life trying to um, make things easier in general and to smooth out all the rough edges. And yet I, I think about how the more difficult things are, the more special our way of responding to the challenges can be, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know exactly what to do with that. Some of the defining moments of our lives are when it's not easy and we have to face and creatively figure out how to do something. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's hard not to be discouraged in moments of crisis and profound challenge and change. Um, it is hard to um, remember that this is an opportunity for deep meaning and mm -hmm. for some of the most important um, experiences that we're going to be having are going to be having, we're going to be having those right now um, when things are incredibly, incredibly diff difficult. Um, As I was listening to your sermon, uh, you know, I, I thought of mom moments. Most of the things that came to mind were not the moments that were, you know, super duper triumphant. You know, the graduations or this the special times like that. I'm not saying those aren't important because they are, 
but when I was, you know, walking through the things that you were talking about, about being a mom, the times that came through for me were the quieter times or the times where one of the kids was having a problem that they needed me for, uh, big or small. Um, I guess they all seemed big at the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the, um, the memories that I have that has had such a lasting impact on me from growing up um, was a time when I was standing in the backyard with you. And it was when I was 14 years old and I was going through a, a dark <laughs> period <laughs> of deciding uh, if I was going to be, well, deciding what my path was going to be, let's say. And, um, and I don't exactly remember your exact words, but it was basically something to the effect of, um, you can do this. And it was very, very basic, very fundamental. And like you say, it wasn't, it wasn't this, um, it, it wasn't spectacle. It wasn't this transcendent, uh, sort of like triumphant moment with a cap and a gown and, you know, or with uh, fireworks of, of some sort, yeah. you know, it was just this moment where I, you said something I, I really needed to hear and I, I, I believed you. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that has stayed with me, um, for all the years since then. Yeah. Well, I can tell an anecdote. That's not what came to my mind, although of course, <laughs> but on a, a, on an earlier occasion, um, the time I, and you probably remember this story too, but you came home from school and you were so upset. Uh, what had happened was you had gone to the, the gifted program and uh, when you came back, they had learned something new. And so you were expected to do this paper without ever having the concepts explained to you. And of course you couldn't, um, and you actually got an F. Uh-huh. <laughs> this time. So, and it went, you were so, so upset and you were, and you wouldn't even talk about it because you were so embarrassed and felt so humiliated. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I remember, okay, this, this is, this is a life lesson. There's a whole, there's a whole bunch of life lessons. First of all, that was an unreasonable expectation of you. Secondly, okay, what do you do when something like this happens? And so my memory of it is I'm going, okay, well, the most important thing is that you learn what you were supposed to learn on this paper, on this paper. So we learned it. And then we talked about how you could take the paper back to school and talk to the teacher about this. And I don't know whether she changes her, your grade or not, but that's not what's really important. What's really important is that you learned what you needed to learn. So, you know, and the, and the broader lesson is, is when bad stuff happens, okay. It doesn't define you. Right. Yeah. You go on, you go on. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're often not inclined to take those lessons from like elementary school and apply them like throughout our lives, because, um, if you really have some major setback, it, I guess it's just, 
I think it's easier for some of us to just see that, like think of that with regret or anger or uh, just some kind of dissatisfaction and, and not just sort of accept that, you know, there's something in here that like, I missed this and I didn't get it right, you know, but it's still important for me to learn from this, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's, it's kind of a fundamental piece of wisdom and it, it's part of being a mature person. And yet I think that, you know, I think we neglect that, that kind of sensitivity. Um, so, uh, I'm thinking about this scripture too, with, um, with some of the ways that you just described, um, supporting a kid growing up and, and this idea of the, the flower and the, uh, the, the God character, who's the, the woman in this, in this parable, um, working the yeast through the flower. Um, now I'm not exactly sure how much flour this, um, this parable is referring to, but I was reading uh, some articles about it. And when they say there's three measures of flour here, that that could have, that a measure might've been 20 pounds of flour, which I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's true. So I don't want to claim that it's true, mm-hmm. but that is a lot of flour. Right. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I just, I picture this person, right. I don't know what exactly she was doing to sift this yeast into the flour was she taking some kind of like piece of pottery or, or cup or something and scooping it around? Or was she taking her bare hands and like pushing and sifting and sort of manipulating the flour, right? Um, in order to, to distribute the yeast amongst all of this, this flour. I'm, but I'm picturing some kind of scenario where a person is really getting in there, right? And is just pushing and and with her hands really affecting this whole thing you know like it's a hands-on getting your hands dirty kind of um endeavor right and i think of that at relating that to motherhood right and uh and also this is this parable does not describe the um outcome of the of the work that she's doing, right? There's no feast later on in this parable where everybody gets to enjoy the bread and eat it, and now we're all nourished, and yay, the end. Like, no, it, the parable is about, this is, this is kind of like how God is. God is working on this bread, right? And in this mm-hmm. parable, we don't have a resolution to that work. And I think right. of that, relate, I relate that, I, that's a way that I think of God as parental and maternal, this idea that like we are working on this, you know, together, uh, whatever it is that we're focusing on. And it's, there's a, a level of trust and hope that there is going to be a wonderful outcome and that all this work is going to be worth it, you know. But in the moment, we're sifting this yeast into this flour. You know, we're not (laughs) <laughs> you know, at the moment, I'm just doing what I'm doing right now. I'm working right. on it. Yeah. I, and I think when you're a parent, at, first of all, I actually, even though you might not consciously remember the, the, some of the things uh, that happened in grade school or that your mother did, uh, or your father, um, I still think it has an effect. Mm-hmm. 
just like right away, you might not see right away that the, you know, that the bread's rising at all. You're not, you don't know. Um, you, and as a parent, you do kind of do the best you can and, and try to have faith and hope mm -hmm. that the, that the leaven is going to work out there. And so I think that's really true. Um, and working it through, I don't know whether they made bread differently at the time that Jesus said this, but the way you make bread now, uh, first you dissolve the yeast in some water, and then you start at you, uh, uh, and you get your, you know, whatever your wet ingredients are, and then, and you, you dissolve it really well in uh, a small amount of flour. And that kind of makes the gluten happen, right? And then you start adding in more and more flour mm -hmm. and the dough gets stiffer and stiffer. And that makes it harder. And then as you're kneading it more and more, you're incorporating more and more of the flour until it gets there, you know. So it's quite a process. Mm -hmm. Uh, and all, you know, all the steps of the flower, uh, the process mm -hmm. matter. Um, and yeah, mm -hmm. very active process, isn't that what I mean? Yeah. Well, back in those days, I mean, they wouldn't have been like, we, we receive the flower, we buy the flower at the store and like, yeah, we're not really even conscious of everything that has happened with that flower mm -hmm. in order to make it available to us. Yeah, they ground their own. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, but again, it plays into in a different way. What you're saying is like, so she, she would have had to like shake out the flour and separate the wheat from the chap and then grind it up and everything. And, and there's this idea that there's this whole like process the process before this moment and then again in this parable there's there's the later reward that is happening after whatever is happening in this parable where the the bread will get baked and the bread will get served and or sold or shared or however and then eaten finally and it's like you, you really get this you really it really just brings home how in the middle this this parable is describing god is working and a lot has been done already and a lot remains to be done in the future and right now this is god in the middle right we're not at the beginning and we're not at the end you know getting the hands dirty yeah right <laughs> right yeah and i i definitely relate to that with with parenting with your first baby or when your babies are first born and you go through this whole process of nine months of pregnancy and and even before that all this anticipation of one day i'm i want to become a parent and you're trying to get pregnant or whatever the case may be um but then after you're so anxious for nine months waiting for your baby to be born and you really feel like you are um you really feel like you're at the end of the process finally like and then the baby is born and you realize you have gotten after all this journey you've gotten yourself to square one you know <laughs> and it's like wow uh, yeah yeah <laughs> um so what about the the feminine um nature of god and the the examples throughout the scripture where god is described whether it's god in particular, or whether it's aspects of God that are described in maternal or feminine ways. It's not that many places in the Bible that talks about God mm -hmm. this way, but it's more than a few, more than a handful. Um, so God is mostly described in male terms, 
but there's far more examples than what I mentioned in the sermon where God is described um, using female language or feminine imagery. And is how does that, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to is there a parable of the lost coin that's also? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, where um, it says the kingdom of God. So there's the three parables. This would be in the gospel of Luke. And there's three lost and found parables that are all together. The first one is um, uh, the woman with the lost coin, I think. And then there, the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son is the third one. And I think the second one is of a man who finds uh, a treasure in a field and then he goes off and no, 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 it's the lost sheep. It's the, uh, <laughs> right. it, Jesus uh, is compared to a shepherd who, um, well, sorry, Jesus tells a parable in which uh, a shepherd loses one of his sheep and leaves the 99 to go find the one. And so these are all together. And in one of them, God's, the God character who goes to find the lost, right. the treasure, the treasured one or the lost sheep or the lost um, child is a woman who loses her coin. Um, yeah, so there's that. And then there's um, a lot of animal language, like God the she-bear and God the mother eagle and God the mother hen and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And then there's sometimes where God is just um, described as nursing Israel, the way a mother nurses a baby and things like that, um, and God giving birth to Israel um, and God um, teaching Israel it, to walk, which in our context, um, is something that a, uh, a father does, you know, obviously fathers feed their babies, you know, and everything today. But, um, anytime there, it describes, um, God's people as a child in, especially in the old Testament, um, it, it is, it is, it should be understood as using feminine language and maternal language to describe God, because it really was the women's job to teach a baby how to, how to walk and, and so on and so forth. Um, but but we're not really conditioned to think about God um, as a mother or as a maternal figure or as a feminine spirit. As, how has that been a part of your spiritual journey and your understanding of faith and things like that? Um, yeah, in the in the faith tradition in which I grew up, it certainly wasn't any part of um, you know my understanding of God or what was taught to me, it's become um, more meaningful to me as an adult. And after I became a mother, those two things actually happened at the same time, right, right when I became an adult, I became a mother. But um, particularly the parable of the lost sheep, as I had more children, uh, I really understood it more. This idea that the totality of the family matters, but each each child is uniquely precious. And I understood that so much more as my children got grew up. Um, and I was probably in my 30s before I really gave consideration to uh, God encompassing shall we say female what are thought of as female characteristics and i think that was actually very affirming 
to me as a person, there is, I think, a long tradition of interpreting scripture um, with women as not only being less than, but as kind of uh, conduits of evil, actually. Uh, As I read and considered the roots of that, I realized how much it had affected me and my ideas about myself and about my worthiness. And, and um, one thing that helped me a great deal uh, was just um, watching actually women in ministry and their assumption, I guess, um, that they were equal in the eyes of God. Of course. And that was pretty affirming to me. That's, it's been a journey for me. It's, it's very persistent. The, you can call it patriarchy or just whatever kind of um, sort of social and religious norms um, have these, these embedded assumptions about the mm-hmm. primacy of men and male the male concept, <laughs> you know, for God. Um, and, and, you know, even after, even as you look around and see um, the way so many things have changed and evolved in society and in churches over the years, um, it, it does sort of, you, you have these moments still where you, where you're just reminded um, of, of how much of an uphill climb it still is. One thing, as I considered these things, one that thing that did strike me in rereading scripture from a different point of view was the ways in which Jesus noted the strength of women. Mm-hmm. Like what? And um, well, just by including them, just by naming them, mm-hmm. um, first of all, and uh, pretty unusual at the time the stories about um the women who came to the tomb those were the the women were the first ones to whom Mm -hmm. the christ was revealed and that's quite extraordinary in a historical context uh in the society in which that took place and in the book of acts the stories of where women are named by name and the references are made uh, to many of the great women of the community. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that was extraordinary for the times. Even the things that that um, Jesus said about divorce, the purpose of that, I believe, was to actually stand up for women, to say they're not just property. If If you aren't going to be married, to them, you have to have a good reason instead of just viewing them as property and kicking them to the curb. A different understanding than I had growing up, certainly. Um, yeah. It has been empowering to me as a woman. Yeah, I mean, the gospel is really, when you have eyes to see or when you're just straight up looking for it, I mean, there are just a lot of really striking moments and examples where the role of women in Jesus's movement is, um, I mean, it's really profound. It's really, really major. An example that comes to mind is when um, 
in the Gospel of Luke mentions uh, a variety of women who are members of Jesus's entourage, his traveling mm -hmm. sort of ministry cohort. And uh, one of them is, is Joanna, the wife of Chutha. <laughs> it, it's fairly easy for somebody casually reading this passage to just sort of read, okay, there's this lady named Joanna and Mary Magdalene and various people, you know, and just keep on reading. But, um, but Chutha, uh, the person that Joanna was married to, was actually the, the right-hand man to like the, the second in command or something, or like the steward or the first mate or however you want to describe it, of King Herod. And he, he was a member of King Herod's um, mm -hmm. court. And uh, so w Luke is really just, I mean, he's, he's saying, hey, hey, you guys, check this out. Like one of Jesus's disciples was a... The, a family member or the spouse of a member of this elite inner sanctum power circle in the king's court. And King Herod, who um, was uh, a puppet king of the Romans, who, um, who was responsible for all sorts of grave atrocities, but also like the just economic exploitation of the people. He was illegitimate in a whole variety of ways. And um, he was among those who wanted Jesus to be killed. And, and it's Joanna who is lifted up as a member of Jesus's ministry, who in, in a really profound like decision to defy the expectations of her family, the, the requirements, the demands of her marriage. I, I mean, she, as, as the wife of Chusa, you know, decides that she's going to follow Jesus. I mean, that is just, I mean, it's just, it's really powerful to just think about that and like what that meant for her to make that individual choice and what it, what it tells us about the movement overall, right? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. I actually don't, um, I, I don't preach Mother's Day sermons, generally speaking. Um, is on Mother's Day at, at your church in Oklahoma, is, is there usually some kind of like Mother's Day theme on Mother's Day to like the sermon or whatever? Um, yeah, there really is. And there was this year too. I mean, everything's online, of course, but um, yeah, there's usually a, a really good sermon, and I thought it was excellent this year often, but it seemingly, especially this year, there was really a, um, a strong emphasis in the Mother's Day sermon about the mothers who make the choice, the biological mothers who make the choice to give their child up for adoption so that that child can have a better life and the mothers who adopt those children. So there was, you know, quite a bit of consideration about that. And, but also the peoples who have served the role of mother in your life. There is, um, I think there is an important role for mothers that is, different from the father and I can't fully define that but in my psychology my work as a psychologist you know the way I kind of say it in my mind is for some people there there's a hole where the mother should be you know if they hmm. not yeah. had that experience even if they've had a good dad there's still a hole where the mother should be and 
of course, in, in my work as a psychologist, one of the ways we work on um, healing that hole, or at least integrating it, is to find and get pieces of mothering from a, a variety of different other folks' um, life. And they usually need to be female. And I, I can't uh, define it any more than that um, because I don't want to put, you know, a bunch of rigid rules on it. But the role of mother is important. Uh, the way that you characterize that is helpful to me. The reason that I often choose not to talk about motherhood and Mother's Day on Mother's Day uh, when I'm leading church is because I feel apprehensive about um, making, um, making broad or sweeping statements about mothers and about motherhood um, because I have an ideal of what I think motherhood is all about. And I feel incredibly fortunate uh, about the mother that I have and uh, all the benefit that I received uh, growing up and developing as a person because of um, who you are. Um, but I'm just, I'm so mindful of all the people in the world um, who have not been supported in their development the way that I was. And I know that, um, sadly, um, you are one of those people <laughs> that you, you are, I don't want to be, um, I want to be truthful and not um, mean-spirited, but it's my sense that you're a better mom than your mom was to you. I have spent a lifetime trying to be. Uh, right. When your sister, when your older sister, our, our first child, was born. I, I, I mean, I was very scared of being a mother because I hadn't had a good role model. Um, and there was this moment when I was hemorrhaging and I was not feeling well at all. I was experiencing quite a bit of pain. And um, your dad um, asked them to bring the baby in. And um, they put the baby up very close and she was crying because she was hungry and, you know, she was a baby. She was crying and they put her right up very close to me and she quit crying. And your dad said, see, she knows your heartbeat. And at that moment, you know you're a mother. That moment isn't the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. When Wendy talked about this moment in the hospital when her daughter was born and the biological mother handed her the baby and said, she's yours, that was her moment. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's not... There's all kinds of ways that this can be, but it's an important uh, moment when you feel both the joy and the responsibility mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. taking 
that role. And um, yeah, I don't want to put a lot of constraints on it either. I do think it's harder when um, when you haven't when you want to be a different one of the things that has been most gratifying to me as a mother. I mean, there are many things, but one of the things has been um, watching my children become parents. It is well known that all four of your children are very, very different in your personalities and in the way you live your lives. But there's this common thread. I don't know whether you guys see it, but when I stand back from my viewpoint, I see that you guys all know how to be parents. And it's like the best thing ever for me. Yeah. Um, I think about you all the time. <laughs> when I'm, well, in general, I think about you uh, a lot um, with all kinds of stuff that I go through in life. But definitely when it comes to parenting challenges and what's, what's called for in the moment, um, I think about you all the time. Um, but what you're also saying here is that for those of us who don't have the benefit of being raised by um, a, a mother who was both equipped and willing to provide the kind of nurture that um, children deserve, that if you didn't have that kind of mother, um, there are there are a lot of those mothers in the world and there are still opportunities for us to um, be brought under the wing of caring and nurturing and supportive women um, even if we're full grown already right and there are right. there are people like that in the world who avail who make themselves available um, Right. Regardless of, of blood ties. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't have those blood ties, there are more people than you know that are willing to help you with that. Mm -hmm. um, not everybody is equipped or willing to help you, but there's more people than you know. Yeah. And related to that, I would say from a spiritual perspective, you know, this all leads us to, to me, it, it seems how, how helpful it actually is to understand uh, the feminine and maternal aspects uh, of God and how mm -hmm. God is not male, is not female, but encompasses all of what it means to be, to, to, to be human. And so as we relate to God, that we would not only relate to God in ways that feel familiar to how we relate to men and fathers. But if we, uh, if we open ourselves up um, to relating to God um, in the ways that we're familiar with relating to women and mothers, you know, that opens up a whole new plane of spiritual nourishment, it seems to me. Um, and I, I really do think that that can be part of a process of profound spiritual healing for people. And I encourage people <laughs> to open their minds and open their, I, their hearts in that way. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, that 
that I guess it was a gradual recognition for me. It's like any other journey that you start out on. You just uh, learn more and feel more. Uh, it becomes part of who you are, even if it wasn't in the beginning. Yeah. Well, I, that that uh, feels like a good place for us to to close. Um, again, I thank you so much for um, joining me on Zoom here to talk about this. I'm thankful for all your wisdom. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you might offer to somebody who might find this on the internet at some point? Well, if you're a parent, um, I think one part that you don't, that is not always recognized is that God made us all creatures of free will and um, that we want our children to become who they are. Um, we have this influence like the leaven of the bread, but, but how children are different from bread in a certain way in that they are vital creatures and um, although we have to keep them safe and we have to teach them um, the things that we think are important, we also have to let them become who they are. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Love you. I love you too. That's it for this episode of The Table Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you can get more devotionals, more podcasts, more information about Bible studies and all sorts of things at our website, uh, www.thetableqc.com. You can also leave a financial gift if you like to support the, the work that we're doing here. We really appreciate that. And we look forward to connecting with you again really soon. Until then, God bless you. Peace be with you.